Okay, so let me get this straight. They are suddenly cut off from their friends and family. The air they breathe might get them killed. Large parts of the country are literally on fire. And everyone is barely hanging on as things go from bad to worse. As an American in 2020, I just don't know if I can relate to this story. It's question time. Thanks for joining us again today, and welcome back to Quinya Questions in Quarantine, where Sam here takes me through the Silmarillion as I read it for the first time ever. Today's chapter is Chapter 18 of The Ruin of Beleriand and the Fall of Fingolfin. Before we dive in, let's have a quick summary of last episode from Sam. Yeah, happy to do it. The last chapter was The Coming of Men into the West, and it's a very well-explained chapter title. The men who have awoken in the east have now traveled into the west of Middle-earth, which is called Beleriand, and Beleriand is where most of the action at the Silmarillion is going to take place in Middle-earth. In the chapter, we learned about the three great houses of men who become friends with the elves. These are the houses of Beor, Hador, and Halith. And in particular, we went into a deep dive on Halith, this shield maiden who saved her people. Now we have the men wandering around Beleriand, settling. Many of them are sort of vassals or friendly peoples with the Noldor who are all throughout Beleriand. And really, we finally have this nice meeting of the two children of Iluvatar. Remember Iluvatar, the one god at the very beginning? He created the elves and he created the men. And these are his two children. And now his children are getting along together. So he must be a nicely uh, proud parent not too much sibling rivalry or squabbles or anything going on at the moment. I do want to give a shout out before we dive into today's episode. We're going to be talking about some geography. If you care about the geography, I would recommend you maybe go back and take a listen to our episode on Beleriand and its realms, where we break down this land into a tic-tac-toe board three by three with Morgoth controlling the top three squares and the elves all spread out in the bottom six. Feel free to check that out. If you don't care too much about the geography, you're not going to miss out on too much, but you just may have to glaze over a couple of the things that Raleigh and I say. I don't think you're going to be any the worse for wear, so you can dial up your own nerddom on that to your own preference. And with that, I'll throw it back to you, Raleigh. This was in some ways a terrible chapter, in some ways a fabulous chapter for the reader, but I'll let you dig into that with your Raleigh recap. Yeah, thanks, Sam. I think we should just dive right in here because this is, as you said, an action-packed chapter. Really just nonstop from the first sentence of the chapter, we just dive right into uh, some of the biggest battles, uh, maybe the biggest battle we've seen so far throughout all of Middle-earth. So we start off the chapter from Fingolfin's perspective. So... He's realizing as the number of men in Beleriand have rapidly expanded, Fingolfin, as the High King of the Noldor, can now begin to think about an assault on Angband. Angband is where Melkor has been hidden out for the past 455 years. Has it been that Um, long? It has actually been that long, yeah. (laughs) 
down to the T. <laughs> He's honestly just been chilling for a while. We have this big sailmate between the Noldor and Melkor's armies. And while many of the Noldor really didn't want to make this assault on Angband, Fingolfin thinks that now's the time. If you're ever going to defeat him fully, this is our moment. We have a lot of men. This is our peak elf numbers as well. So let's do it now. Right. But Morgoth also has been sitting there for 455 years. And he's been brooding, waiting for his moment. And now this is our moment. The stage is set for our battle. Yeah. And so Morgoth starts off this huge battle by beginning with a river of flame and fire erupting out of Angorodrim. Yeah, that's the triple volcano that rests right above Angband, his home base in the north. I think he really seizes the initiative in this battle, you would say. You got to make that great first impression. So he's coming out <laughs> firing, literally. Scorches everything in its path and then follows this up by throwing poisonous air descending onto the plane near Angband. So now you're getting choked by the air that's smothering you as well as burning alive. Not what you're looking for if you're these elves. So then comes Glaurung, the father of the dragons, and a host of Balrocks and an army of orcs in numbers that the Noldor have never seen or really even imagined. And so the armies of Morgoth slaughter everything in their path. The elves and men scattered all throughout Beleriand into their strongholds, and this hundreds of years of siege of Angband has now been broken by Melkor in a fiery flame. Yeah, and the battle itself is called Dagor Bragalach, the Battle of Sudden Flame. And I think you're right. This is the single greatest attack we've ever seen in the Silmarillion. It's way bigger than anything in the Lord of the Rings. We not only have dragons, Balrogs, orcs beyond counting, but we have this primordial like fire erupting everywhere from the ground, poisonous ash filling the air. You know, Morgoth had 455 years where he basically was just hiding underground and getting ready. And he basically plays all of his chips right now and is amazingly successful. The elves were trying to keep an eye on him to make sure he didn't do this for 455 years. But man, I would hate to have that guard duty. <laughs> yeah. Be like, well, it's year 200. He hasn't done anything yet. Well, it's year 300. He hasn't done anything. And then it's like the one day you like took a vacation or you put the guard with poor eyesight out there. And then here comes the Battle of Sudden Flame. Yeah. Yeah. Really, this is when the first time we get to see them fighting the valor. So now we have our elves and men basically fighting the gods. Right. And as you predict, that's not great for the children of Iluvatar, the elves and men who have to go up against Morgoth. And I think the part of that that really stands out to me about it being a god is it's this fire and ash dynamic. Remember that maybe the first naughty thing that Melkor ever did in the world before there were any creatures except gods was every time the other nice Valar or the Arda Corporation, you know, they would build a mountain and he would level it. And then they would try and like dig a river path and he would fill it in. So he really is throwing out this geologic upheaval he can wield as a weapon. And this is the Ruin of Beleriand, the chapter title coming true. If we're thinking about the geography, remember Morgoth started this with the top three squares, or basically the whole north of Beleriand was under his control. The elves had these other six squares. In this 
sudden battle assault that Raleigh described, Morgoth basically takes the center square of our tic-tac-toe board completely. And much like an actual tic-tac-toe game, that's a very important square to be (laughs) having. A popular first pick if you're playing tic-tac-toe. And once he has this center square, of course, he can go every other way he wants. So he also takes big parts of the center left square where Fingolfin, High King of the Noldor, lives. He also takes a huge patch of the center right square, East Beleriand, where the sons of Feanor, the guys with the oath, where they live. So he just immediately blows out the whole center of this siege and it's never really going to be restored. There's never going to be a cease of this war for the rest of our story, for the most part. The time of peace is over completely. Yeah, so where is Doriath in this? Was that in the center square as well? So the center square we said was called Dorthonian. So Dorthonian was this mountainous, hilly, pine needle kind of covered area where we thought that armies would have a hard time passing through the center square. So it's not as well defended. And of course, Morgoth basically just lights it entirely on fire. Doriath, which is where Thingol and Melian, our power couple, live with the Sindar, the Grey Elves, that is the bottom center square where the girdle Uh, of Melian is protected. That's holding on for now. And in fact, many of the elves who are defeated by this battle funnel down to Doriath because it's a safe place. Just, you know, so we don't dig into it too far, some of the big casualties of this sudden onslaught by Morgoth are the two Noldor who control Dorthonian, the center square. These are two sons of Finarfin, the wise brother. Their names are Angrod and Agnor. They're killed basically right off the bat. The men are involved in this battle as well. Remember, they're scattered throughout the elven lands. And of those three houses of the men, remember, we have the house of Beor, the house of Hador, and the house of Haleth. The leaders of two of those houses are immediately killed as well. The house of Beor and Hador fight valiantly, but are immediately snuffed out in this onslaught of Balrog's dragon, orcs, geology, etc., yeah, I mean, if, if Gandalf has difficulty with Balrocks, I can't imagine men are going to be much of a match. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. Of course, we also have this dragon, Glaurung, soaring around. And this is not the first time we've seen Glaurung. Remember when the Noldor first showed up in Middle-earth after being in Valinor for a long time? Morgoth sent out Glaurung to fight them, but Fingon the son of Fingolfin chased him off because Glaurung was too small. Now right, it's been right. four, he's been 455 years. He's in the prime of his burning everybody life when he comes out yeah. this time. He's peaking right now, ready for destruction. So they almost knocked him out before, but he was just uh, just able to escape. And now he's back. Yeah, much like Morgoth biding his time for this huge assault. So that's all the bad news. <laughs> Couple pieces of good news. So Morgoth is a god. He's got all these forces. The Balrogs, remember, are these Maiar spirits. But these are first age elves, many of whom have seen the light of the trees of Valinor. They have seen the Silmarils. They have lived with the gods. These are not your everyday 
elf. And so they're going to put up a fight and they are joined by these men as well. So a couple of, I don't want to call them highlights for the good guys, but at least not total defeats. One of them is Maethros. And so Maethros, you may remember, is the oldest son of Feanor, the crafty brother who made the Silmarils. Feanor is dead, but there are these seven sons, and the oldest of them is Maethros. And Maethros was the one who was captured by Morgoth and chained to the wall of the mountain. And then Fingon went and rescued him by cutting off his hand to rescue him from the chains of Morgoth. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Remember that. This is where Maethros gets his revenge on Morgoth a little bit. He holds this hill in East Beleriand and will not let the orcs and Glaurung through. And he basically single-handed, he and his people, the other sons are defeated and have to run away, or they have to run to his aid because he's the only one doing a good job. But he's saying, you may have made me lose my hand and betrayed me and killed my father, but you are not taking this hill <laughs> in East Balerion. So props to Maethros, the oldest of Feanor's sons. The second good moment is about Finrod Felagund and Barahir, one of these leaders of men. So remember, two of the sons of Finarfin, this Angrod and Agnor, they are killed in Dorthonian. They were the ones closest to Morgoth when it started, and they're overwhelmed. Their brother, Finrod Felagund, who we talked about in the last episode, he's the one who played the harp for the men and taught them wisdom. He is rushing up to try and help his brothers in the middle square. He can't get there in time. And he is in turn surrounded by orcs. But this man named Barahir, who is of the house of Beor, comes to his aid and Barahir and his men manage to encircle Finrod with spears and Barahir gets him to safety. So Finrod, who is a very important elf and was going to die, is going to live to fight another day. This is important for a couple of reasons. One, just because, you know, you need to keep your Noldor lords alive if they're ever going to have any chance of a comeback. And two, this is the origin for a important object in our Lord of the Rings story. Aragorn in the Lord of the Rings wears a ring and it's called the Ring of Barahir. In fact, in the movie, I think maybe it's an extended scene. There's a little mention of this where Saruman is talking to Wormtongue and he says something like, one of the Dunedain rangers, I thought he was, his cloth was poor, and yet he bore a strange ring, two serpents with emerald eyes, one devouring, the other crowned with golden flowers. And then Saruman, because he's a smarty, he knows, he says, ah, the Ring of Barahir. And this is the ring that Finrod, this elf who has just been rescued by Barahir and his men, Finrod takes his ring off and gives it to Barahir. And this will become an heirloom of the house of Barahir, which is the house of Beor, and it will eventually pass to Aragorn. And in fact, in the book, even Aragorn gives this ring to Arwen as her engagement ring. So we've oh, got... Really? Yeah, so we have this long history of this ring. And then that insignia, that two serpents, one devouring, the other crowned with golden flowers, 
That's the symbol of the house of Finarfin, the wise brother, Finrod's father, Galadriel's father, and then these two guys, Angron and Egnor, who have just died, their father as well. So there's this great bond moment that happens between Finrod and Barahir that will shape the future of the story in certain ways. And we're going to see in the next chapter of the Silmarillion, this ring is going to show up again because Finrod really owes Barahir and his people one for this savior moment. Those two things, Maethros doing okay and Finrod not dying, that's about the only thing that goes well for the elves and men at this point. All else is bad. They're pushed out of the middle of Dorthonian. They're pushed back to the east. They're pushed back to the west. They have to flee to the south. The siege is broken. And if you're Fingolfin, the high king of the Noldor, it looks like you have lost the war basically in one day. Yeah, it's not a war at this point. It's a slaughter. Yeah. What are you going to do? It's a dragon at Balrogs and orcs, right? Yeah, more orcs than you could ever imagine. And you're least afraid of them. Right. So, yeah, Morgoth's armies have crushed the elves and men wherever they go. And when finally in total fear and utter destruction of the Noldor, Fingolfin alone throws up the biggest Hail Mary possible, I would say. Yeah. Like really the only choice he has. And so he alone approaches the gates of Angban and challenges Morgoth to hand in hand combat. Mano Imano. Yeah. And just a quick reminder about Fingolfin. Remember, there were three of these Noldor brothers Feanor, the crafty one who made the Silmarils and has died. Finarfin, the smart one who never left Valinor and is presumably still chilling with the gods with a martini in a hot tub or something like that. <laughs> and Fingolfin, the middle brother, the most loyal, bravest, and greatest fighter the Noldor have ever seen, who followed his brother into exile against his better judgment. And now his brother has died and he is personally responsible for all of the elves in Beleriand, and he's watching them die. It's like a suicide mission, right? He's like, we've lost. I'm going to go challenge Morgoth, a god, to a one-on-one battle for all the marbles. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For all the marbles. So now we're going to read perhaps our longest quote of the entire podcast. But this is one of Sam and Mai's favorite parts, and we just can't do it justice the way Tolkien can. And so, now news came to Hithlam that Dorthonian was lost, and the sons of Finarfin overthrown, and that the sons of Feanor were driven from their lands. Then Fingolfin beheld, as it seemed to him, the utter ruin of the Noldor, and filled with wrath and despair, he mounted upon Roshalor, his great horse, and rode forth alone, and none might restrain him. A great madness of rage was upon him, so that his eyes shone like the eyes of the valor. Thus he came alone to Angband's gates, and he sounded his horn, and smote once more upon the brazen doors, and challenged Morgoth to come forth in single combat. And Morgoth came. And so here it is, we have in this very moment, 
that it's the first and the only time in the Silmarillion where we see Morgoth, the villain of every being in Arda, in combat. Slowly from his subterranean throne, he issued forth clad in black armor, and he stood before the king like a tower iron crowned, and his vast shield, sable unblazoned, cast a shadow over him like a storm cloud. But Fingolfin gleamed beneath it as a star, for his mail was overlaid with silver, and his blue shield was set with crystals, and he drew his sword, Ringel, that glittered like ice. Then Morgoth hurled aloft Grand, the hammer of the underworld, and swung it down like a bolt of thunder. But Fingolfin sprang aside, and Grand rent a mighty pit in the earth. Many times Morgoth is aid to smite him, and each time Fingolfin leaped away, as a lightning shoots from under a dark cloud. And he wounded Morgoth with seven wounds, and seven times Morgoth gave a cry of anguish, whereat the hosts of Angban fell upon their faces in dismay the cries echoed in the Northlands. But at the last, the king grew weary, and Morgoth bore down his shield upon him. Thrice he crushed to his knees, and thrice rose again, and bore up his broken shield and stricken helm. But the earth was all rent, and pitted about him, and he stumbled and fell backward before the feet of Morgoth. And Morgoth set his left foot upon his neck, and the weight of it was like a fallen hill. Yet with his last and desperate stroke, Fingolfin hewed the foot with Ringel, and the blood gushed forth black and smoking, and filled the pits of Grand. Thus died Fingolfin, High King of the Noldor, most proud and valiant of the elven kings of old. The orcs made no boast of that duel at the gate, neither do the elves sing of it, for their sorrow is too deep. And Morgoth took the body of the elven king and broke it, and would cast it to his wolves. But Thorondor came hastening from his eyrie among the peaks of Chrysigrim, and he stooped upon Morgoth and marred his face. The rushing of the wings of Thorondor was like the noise of the winds of Manway, and he seized the body in his mighty talons, and soaring suddenly above the darts of the orcs, he bore the king away. And he laid him upon a mountaintop that looked from the north upon the hidden valley of Gondolin, and Turgon, coming built a high cairn over his father. Morgoth went ever halt of one foot after that day, and the pain of his wounds could not be healed, and in his face was the scar that Thorondor made. and forth and we decided we really couldn't do anything less than let Tolkien take it away for us on that perhaps the most epic one-on-one combat in any of the Tolkien legendarium between the High King of the Elves, Fingolfin, and the Black Foe of the world, Morgoth. And though Fingolfin loses, 
It does say that Morgoth and the orcs can't feel good about that battle. And forever, Morgoth is going to be marked by these wounds that Fingolfin gave him. And also from these like scratches of the great eagle of Manway, Thorondor. And he's going to ever have to hobble. He's going to be wounded basically forever. So this child of Iluvatar, Fingolfin, has managed to wound the greatest god that lives on earth in arda yeah i mean i don't know if it's a poetic idea or even in real life where you you get that first strike on what seems like an undefeatable foe yeah it shows that it's not hopeless for the elves fingolfin had no chance but he showed that morgoth is fallible and also importantly, I think Morgoth's people saw that Morgoth was. Yeah, yeah, so, good point. And there is that dichotomy, right? That Fingolfin was willing to sacrifice himself to go on this suicide mission to fight Morgoth. And that will be remembered by the other elves and the men forever and be a reason for them to fight. Whereas Morgoth had to be dragged basically out to come fight Fingolfin. He had to be peer pressured into it. And then he did not win a resounding victory despite his obvious advantages, having this enormous hammer, being a god, hitting giant cracks in the earth. Yeah. (laughs) Couple little moments there while we say an RIP to Mr. Fingolfin, the bravest and greatest warrior of the elves one is in the lord of the rings films they make a little homage to that foot stabbing moment in this battle that raleigh just read for you how fingolfin dies is that morgoth basically puts his foot upon fingolfin and crushes him to death but fingolfin pulls out his sword and stabs the foot of morgoth that is pressing him down and that's what makes him crippled from hereafter in the return of the king film in the last final battle at the black gate there's a moment where aragorn is fighting a giant armored troll and the troll plants his foot on aragorn and crushes him to the ground and aragorn pulls out his knife and stabs the troll's foot And I think it's an homage to this exact showdown that we have here. Also, perhaps the clearest Lord of the Rings connection and one that's really interesting also has to do with the return of the king. And this is the book as well as the movie. And this is, of course, the name of Morgoth's unholy weapon, Grond, the hammer of the underworld and I'm sure you picked up on it, Raleigh, because it's chanted many a time in the story. But Grand is also the name of the battering ram that Sauron's orcs bring to Minas Tirith with the wolf's head to smash down the mighty gate of Minas Tirith. Yeah, so is Morgoth's Grand also a wolf's head? It's not said. I picture him just a giant hammer that a god would hold maybe like a thor's hammer kind of thing but the evil version the wolf motif actually is something associated with sauron in particular and we actually are going to learn in this chapter a little bit about sauron's connection to wolves but briefly i did want to bring up this moment where grand this battering ram comes to assault minas tirith trying to be reminiscent of this hammer of the underworld 
So remember, there's this orc at the Battle Minister named Gothmog, and he's named after this Balrog way back mm-hmm. that Morgoth had. It's kind of the same dynamic, right? The orcs get super pumped up in the Lord of the Rings to fight when they hear Grond is coming because they know it's almost like Morgoth, their ancient ruler, has come back to send his weapon into the battle. And this yeah, is yeah. how it reads in the Return of the King book. The drums rolled louder, fires leaped up, great engines crawled across the field, and in the midst was a huge ram swinging on mighty chains. Long had it been forging in the dark smithies of Mordor, and its hideous head, founded of black steel, was shaped in the likeness of a ravening wolf. On it, spells of ruin lay. Grand, they named it, in memory of the hammer of the underworld of old. Great beasts drew it, orcs surrounded it, and behind walked mountain trolls to wield it. Grand reached the gate. It swung. A deep boom rumbled through the city like thunder rolling in the clouds, but the doors of iron and posts of steel withstood the stroke. Then the black captain rose in his stirrups and cried aloud in a dreadful voice, speaking in some forgotten tongue words of power and terror to rend both heart and stone. Thrice he cried, thrice the great ram boomed, and suddenly upon the last stroke the gate of Gondor broke. As if stricken by some blasting spell, it burst asunder. There was a flash of searing lightning, and the doors tumbled in riven fragments to the ground. In rode the Lord of the Nazgul. And here we have in The Return of the King, probably the lowest point for our heroes of The Lord of the Rings, right? This is as low as it gets. The walls of Minas Tirith have been breached. Here comes the Lord of the Ring Wraiths to ruin everything. It's all over. More orcs than they really could ever imagine are coming at him. Yeah, so a similar circumstance here with Grond in the Silmarillion, wielded by Morgoth, who just has killed the greatest warrior that the elves have. Lucky enough, in The Return of the King, of course, this is right before Theoden and the writers of Rohan show up. And it transitions actually directly into his epic sun charge that we talked about in the sun and moon chapter. There's also this thing about like the battering ram striking three times, which is the same number of times that Fingolfin was pinned and then stood back up again and then finally was crushed by Morgoth. So some real symmetry for this battering ram slash hammer of the underworld. Yeah, yeah, I like that. And it's the biggest battle of the Lord of the Rings with the the biggest battle of the Silmarillion I've seen. So yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. I like that symmetry, the direct tie-in. Yeah. And I can't imagine it was nice for the people in Minas Tirith to hear all the orcs chanting grand because they might know yeah, they, what they that know what's means. Up. Yeah, they know what's up. So just a little bit more of a downer there on Quenya Questions Quarantine for you. Yeah, pour one out for Fingolfin. <laughs> and I'll let you keep rocking because the action doesn't end there in this chapter. No, no. Really not even close. We still got tons of miles to go before we sleep on this one. So yes, Vingolfin is dead, but now we have a man who we've been referring to quite a bit here so far in the episode, or at least his minions, 
and that is Sauron. Yeah. So for the first time, we really get some Sauron action here in the Silmarillion. And so Sauron is Morgoth's highest lieutenant. Is that correct way to think about him? Yeah, I think so. He's his right-hand man, kind right-hand of, we, man. we said, was the vice president in the Melkorp evil okay. corporation <laughs> of Morgoth. So his greatest lieutenant is Sauron, but you're right. He hasn't done diddly so far in the story until now. No, he's been just waiting it out with Morgoth. I guess they're playing like tiddlywinks or something back there. I don't know what they're doing, but... They're getting ready for exactly this, man. Yeah. So this battle has been raging for two years. It does seem like it's kind of a quick succession, but then I guess there's a bit of a a holding pattern once Majoros and then uh, especially Fingolfin has his battle. But then after two years, Sauron's unleashed and he leads an assault on Minas Tirith. Ironically enough, it is called Minas Tirith. Yeah, we do get a touch on Minas Tirith, of course, a different Minas Tirith, which we know means the Tower of the Guard. And this Minas Tirith is one that controls an important river kind of between the middle square and the middle left square, Hithlum, where some elves are. An important strategic river crossing with this city slash stronghold like in the middle of a river, and it's called Minas Tirith. So you're right, Raleigh. Sauron gets to take Minas Tirith this time, even if he tries again later in The Lord of the Rings and doesn't do quite so hot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's successful with his capture of Minas Tirith. And we get a pretty cool description of Sauron here. Honestly, one of the few descriptions throughout maybe all the Tolkien universe. With Sauron as a being form rather than the spirit that he is in Lord of the Rings. And so the quote, Sauron was become now a sorcerer of dreadful power. Master of shadows and of phantoms, foul in wisdom, cruel in strength, misshaping what he touched, twisting what he ruled, lord of werewolves, his dominion was torment. What an amazing like WWE wrestler intro that would be right there. (laughs) The Um, lord of werewolves. Yeah, cruel in strength, twisting what he ruled, his dominion was torment. So this is Sauron who, yeah, takes Minas Tirith, this important stronghold of the elves. And just because we happen to touch on it, yeah, so you see a lord of werewolves there. So this is that wolf connection we're talking about with the wolf head of Grond, the battering ram. And it might be a shocker to people not in the know, but yes, there are werewolves in the Tolkien universe. And we're going to see some more werewolves in the next couple chapters of our story. So stay tuned for that. We don't get a lot of detail about where they come from, but they're werewolves. And I think for Tolkien, these are less our Twilight style, full moon. They change between men and wolves, but more just these are evil Maiar demigod spirits, kind of like the Balrogs that take on a wolfish form. You know, kind of like how Ungoliant has a spider form and the Balrogs are these shadowy fire demons. I think that's more of the werewolf vibe. And Sauron is the lord of all of these werewolves under Morgoth's command. Maybe that's under his purview as vice president. He's got to look out for the werewolves. <laughs> okay. Okay. But yes, Minas Tirith has been captured and Sauron and Morgoth begin to overwhelm really all of Beleriand at this point. But it was then that Morgoth used his cunning to great effect. So he is dominating everybody on the battlefield. And now he's supplanting the men and elves with his cunning by spreading despair and fear. And for the men, Morgoth sends 
the men of the east, who he had previously already corrupted. And these men joined the sons of Feanor to secretly supplant them. Yeah, again, it comes back to this terrible curse of Mandos and the doom and the kinsling, right? Where that Noldor, this particular group of elves that made the Silmarils because they killed their brethren, the Teleri, and stole their ships and burned their ships, they're cursed to have all of their good works turn against them. And they're always suspicious of each other, right? So now Morgoth controls the center of the map. And because of Sauron's work, he kind of controls all the passageways between the different squares. So the elves are out of communication and they can't talk to each other. And there's just lies and deceit and miscommunication. And they can't really gather for any kind of cohesive pushback against Morgoth because of these lies. And then on top of that, these men from the east come in over the mountains. And these are not the three houses of the elf friends, but what will later become the Easterlings. And some of them are going to be cool, actually, and hang out with the elves and actually do good things. But another house of them is going to end up betraying the elves and serving Morgoth. So he has planted spies, betrayers deep in with the elves who already aren't able to gather together in their defense. Do want to throw out one other little silver lining moment. So we had Maethros, the son of Feanor, is doing okay. Finrod survives and he gives his ring to Barahir and we have a strengthening of that elf and man partnership. And whose house would you think but the House of Haleth, our shield maiden that we talked about at length in the last episode, her people crush it. When the orcs come south and get close to Doriath and Thingol and Melian, that's where Haleth and her descendants are hanging out. And they kick those orc butts and send them running back north. So Haleth is long dead by this point because we're about six generations of men down the line. But the people of Haleth crushing it in her honor. So I wanted to give my shout out for Haleth there. Yeah, noble people, you might say. So I'm glad you mentioned some men because we have now another kind of section of the chapter and deviates and looks into a couple men that we never really dove into in the previous chapter, but I think the names were mentioned at the very end. These are Hurin and Hur. And so Hurin and Hur are separated from their company in battle and are completely lost. But they're saved by our favorite eagle, Thorondor, and he takes them to Gondolin for safety. And so these two men are the first men who have ever been to Gondolin and perhaps the first ones to ever even know of its existence. And so Turgen, who, if you remember, is the head of Gondolin, at the behest of Ulmo, welcomes them where they stay for a full year's time. And so Turgon uh, honestly becomes very fond of these two men, but only allows them to leave by eagle again uh, the way that they came. So they'll never know where the passage into Gondolin is. I guess if they had like a hot air balloon or something, they could have gotten in as well. But eagle is the only passageway that they know. Right. And so they uh, they return to their father. And although they never speak of Gondolin, this is when the story gets a little interesting. So Morgoth's servants become kind of aware of their strange fortune, how they survived after being separated from their company or gone for a year and then come back 
probably better than when they uh, they left. Got healed, got plenty of food, water, got to sing with the elves. They had a good life in Gondolin. But now Morgoth begins hearing a little bit of whispers of this place because these two men have left. And so meanwhile, Turgon wants to try to help out the elves, but he doesn't want to reveal where Gondolin is. So he doesn't send any forces into battle, but he does send out some ships to Valinor in hopes of getting aid from the Valor. But if you remember, the Valor have completely shut off Valinor. Yeah, and this is more from that doom of Mandos, that curse where, hey, if you decide to return and fight Morgoth for the Somerils and you're going to do this kinslaying, like, we're not going to help you. So Turgon's trying to say, like, please come help. We're fighting a god and we're losing, but none of the ships can get to Valinor right now. Right, right. And so all these ships are lost at sea, so they're no use. But now in allowing these people to leave via ship, there's another hint now revealed of Gondolin's existence to Morgoth. Yeah, which is, as we've said many a time about Gondolin, which literally means the hidden rock. If you are not hidden anymore, then you're just the rock and you're not in very good shape. So two ways in which Morgoth might start have an inkling about Gondolin's existence. I just have a couple of notes here because I know we're running a little long today. First, there is this break in the chapter. So the first part is all this battle of sudden flame, the Dagor Bragalak, Morgoth, and Sauron do really well. And then it switches, you know, it does this great thing that Sauron does, right? It was like zoomed out, and now we're zooming back in again. And we have, as you said, Hurin and Hor, who are two men. Their background's not too important. They're brothers. They are actually a mixture of a couple of these different houses of men. And pretty soon through their marriages, their bloodline actually is going to include all three houses. The House of Beor, House of Haleth, House of Hador are all going to be mixed in their bloodline. So that's kind of cool. But yeah, they get basically a year long vacation from the war in Gondolin, the place where no man has ever seen. And... As you said, they kind of find a loophole in Turgon's very strict nobody can come in, nobody can come out policy. <laughs> and Turgon's like, you got me. I guess I have to let you out. You convinced me because he really likes these two men who are leaders of their houses. So they return home. But as you said, the inklings that Gondolin exists start to sneak out and possibly get to the nefarious spies of Morgoth. Yep. So at this point, he didn't even know of its existence, right? No. And it does say that his mind is troubled. Morgoth knows that Turgon exists. So Turgon is a son of Fingolfin. And in fact, earlier in this chapter, we saw Turgon burying his father Fingolfin in the mountains around Gondolin, because that's where the eagle brought the body of Fingolfin. So Turgon's quite a powerful elf and nobody knows where he is. Because he's just been chilling in Gondolin the whole time. So Morgoth's worried about that, but he doesn't even know the word Gondolin at this point. And I think that that is our little glimmer of hope to end this very dark chapter. Remember, it was a long time ago where Olmo, the valor in charge of the waters, and he's the one who never really abandoned people. He told Turgon to go build Gondolin, and he told Finrod to go build Nargothrond. And Nargothrond is one of these underground 
kingdoms, which is in the bottom left square in our Beleriand map. Mm -hmm. Morgoth doesn't know where either of those are. And that is kind of the only thing keeping the Noldor together at this time. Interestingly, remember Gondolin is in that middle square of our tic-tac-toe board. So it is deep behind enemy lines by the end of the chapter, and Morgoth doesn't know where it is, and the people of Gondolin continue to prepare. They get news of the outside world from Hurin and Huor, and Nargothrond in the southwest where Finrod is, the guy who just gave his ring to Barahir and survived. His people are doing okay too. So that's the glimmer of hope. Morgoth can't find them. He's really flipped the script in terms of he was under siege for 455 years. Now he is the seeker and they are the hiders trying to stay out of his evil eye. As you mentioned, we end on a a good note here. So as you said, the elves are barely holding on. But then Círdan, our ship friend, way off in the west, comes up and sends some ships up the river and ambushes the orcs. I guess he kind of ends the siege of the elves at this point, or at least gives them some breathing room. And so then it is this time that we are also getting our two men. Hurin becomes the leader of the house of Hador and Baron, son of Barahir, eventually stumbles on Doriath, which we haven't talked about very much in this chapter. But it now leads us into the next chapter where we learn of our legendary duo of Baron and Luthien. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, as you said, Raleigh, Baron and Luthien, legendary duo, excited to get into that. I will say that Baron and Luthien is quite a doozy of a chapter. It's got a great importance for the Lord of the Rings story and for Aragorn and for Arwen. It also has a big importance for J.R. Tolkien himself. And I'm excited to dig into that. But Raleigh and I have decided that before we break into Baron and Luthien, we want to make sure everybody is on the same page. We were looking at the number of proper nouns and geography and elves we were talking about in this chapter alone, and we thought, hey, let's take a step back and make sure we are all on the same page before we dive into Baron and Luthien, perhaps Tolkien's greatest story of the Silmarillion. So next week, we're going to do something we've done once before and do a summary of the last section of the text. So a while ago, we did a Summerillion of about the first eight or nine chapters of the Summerillion. Next time, we're going to do the Summerillion 2 and fill in the gap of what has happened in the most recent eight chapters or so. And so we can all be together on the same page and ready to blaze into Baron and Luthien. Does that sound like a plan, Raleigh? Yeah, definitely. I hope I'm on the same page as all our listeners here and that I could definitely use a Summerillion again. I think I could as well. And that will also give Raleigh and I time to prep what may be quite a significant episode for us. Until then, it's been great chatting about all the terrible things happening in Beleriand with you, Raleigh. Yeah, when, when did things get good for the elves? I'm not, I'm not quite seeing it yet. Well, uh, we're going to hold out hope. <laughs> that's all the elves can do for the time. But we'll dig into that more next time on Coining Questions in Quarantine. I'll see you then, Raleigh. See you, Sam. <laughs>